So it's an honor to be with you. I actually have never attended or participated in a service here before on Sunday, yet I've been blessed by you nonetheless. Uh, I've been able to get to know some of your leaders who have been an ex- a significant encouragement to me. Jeff Burr, John Marco, in my faith journey. Particularly in the, the, the group of ba- local Baptist church gatherings, they've invited me in to participate in, the, in those, and they have both been a significant blessing. And particularly the one time I was here for John Marco's ordination, and it was fabulous. It was such an encouragement to my soul to see a guy whom I resonated with so much in, in his beliefs get ordained here. Way to go. Baptist churches in the area. And uh, the flagship church this has been in Grand Rapids. And um, so um, I, I, I'm honored to be here um, to participate in your sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. What, what a blessing to come and be able to participate in this. And today we're going to be talking about in the Apostles' Creed that belief statement, the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And as you know, as you've probably um, have, as you've walked through this all these weeks thus far, when a person speaks this creed, they're speaking core beliefs the Bible advances. And when they affirm this creed, they affirm they too hold these beliefs. And so how encouraging is it to know that the church through the decades and the centuries have affirmed and advanced this creed, this set of beliefs. Um, and in a way, this, this creed is helpful in articulating the substance of what we believe when we claim we're a Christian. So have you ever had it where you've met someone and they said they were a Christian and you just kind of wonder, oh, I wonder what that means for them when they say they're a Christian. You ever, you ever had that? The creed provides summary statements of what the Bible affirms, summary statements we can recite, not rote reciting, but to recite and to articulate the substance of our faith, affirmed from the heart as an identity marker of those within the family of believers. And so like you heard from John Marco last week, I thought I'd quote him. When um, in this creed, it talks about, I believe. And when we think about what does it mean to believe, John Marco said this. Belief is not only cognitive and intellectual, but also effective, invoking our affections and volitional, impacting our will, prompting us to action. End of quote. And so just to rehearse the creed one more time, Where are we in this? Let's uh, recite this together. It goes like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven 
and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So here we are towards the end of this creed. It sounds like y'all have been in this creed a while, having navigated all the stuff up above. And here we are um, in the portion of the creed, the affirmation, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And we're going to be together in Hebrews chapter 8 and 9. So if you could grab a Bible and meet me there in Hebrews chapter 8 and 9. And as we get into this, um, of all the Apostles' Creed, of all of what we just recited, this affirmation, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, might be like the most common. (laughs) Describing the Christian faith because of the phrase, Jesus died for my sins. And that phrase could become so common that it could almost lose its impact by becoming easily glossed over. And my aim today is to consider the significance and weight Scripture places upon this affirmation, forgiveness of sins, in hopes we are stirred to a deeper level of hope in Jesus, gratitude, and worship to Jesus God, our King and Savior. And so, as we get into this together, uh, just a question to just get us started, our minds thinking a little bit. Have you ever been or ever participated in or have been in the middle of a very overwhelming project in your life? (laughs) Maybe you felt overwhelmed by the pain, by by the pressure, by the stress, of managing all the details of getting this project done. Maybe you were in the middle of a school project and you had other uh, folks on your team and you're like, how are we going to get through this? It's a bit of an overwhelming project. Or maybe you were doing a capstone project for school. Or maybe you were writing a dissertation. Or maybe you were just trying to survive finals week maintaining good grades. And that project in and of itself, that undertaking was overwhelming. Or maybe you were just trying to manage a season of working overtime. Because the organization doesn't have enough employees to sustain it and a lot of weight and pressure is on you. Or maybe you were settling into a new job. So much to learn, to train, to onboard into this new job. Or maybe you're renovating your kitchen and trying to live in it at the same time with your family. And there's just like, when is this project going to be done? There's dust everywhere. Oh, how great would it be to have this finished? Or maybe on top of your job, you just decided to add college classes. How hard could that be? Or maybe you're trying to do several of these items all while having a young family. Or maybe it's just surviving, trying to get the kids enrolled in school tomorrow. All the kids. Schedules, transportation, all the paperwork, all the username and passwords you have to set up to get this going, all the lunches, the, the sports, the, uh, the school supplies, and then on top of all that, like what is like, what is the attire that's acceptable in school right now that the kids want to wear and manage all that? 
Or maybe you've decided to take on a wedding or a graduation and a family reunion, and you're trying to manage all those details. Projects, seasons, undertakings like these can be so intense, yet the relief and satisfaction to stand back, so it speaks, or sit down when it's completed. So like your church, I noticed I was able to step out into that like uh, atrium area where the buildings have been connected. Whoa, very beautiful and a big undertaking, I'm sure, as I saw construction a few years back happening here. So like your church, just our church down the road, have done a significant amount of renovation and kind of on top of some of my other responsibilities, I was in there doing some of the renovation, project managing, trying to get supplies, all those things. And it was like, oh man, when is this project going to be complete? And finally, when we were on the other side of the renovation, to sit down or to stand back from it all and to see the final outcome was such a blessing, so satisfying. So elated to see the relationships that were built in the process and the church family doing ministry and enjoying the renovated spaces. So some of our greatest memories are the completion of an immense undertaking. And the Bible speaks of God sitting down. At the completion of an immense undertaking. An impossible undertaking. God in his majesty, power, and love pulled it off. The undertaking of undertakings. Impacting all of humanity. God, Jesus, providing forgiveness and purification of sins. One of the great gifts believers receive and a paramount confession in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus sat down. And as we get into this passage today, my, the main idea I hope that we get from this is that the ultimate high priest provides ultimate forgiveness. The ultimate high priest provides ultimate forgiveness. And I'm going to start here on the screen and introduce our first verse, but you may have picked up a um, some notes uh, to take along the way, and really the majority of those notes are just filling in the blanks of some of the verses we're going to go through and from the NIV version. And um, feel free to just, you know, look on the screen here. My plan is to put, post some of these verses on the screen and then read others to you as we try to navigate these two chapters of Hebrews together. So, chap- so chapter 8, verse 1 begins like this. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest. Let me stop there for a minute. So the author of Hebrews, an unknown author, writing to this audience of believers. So it would seem this audience of believers are are Israelite believers. But so it also seems that in the midst of them is non-Israelite believers. But one thing that they would hold in common is it would seem that they would have a very high understanding of the Old Testament as this New Testament author writes to them to encourage them in their walk with Jesus with the assumption of, man, you guys know the Old Testament. 
And I don't know about for you, have you ever done like a reading plan through uh, the Bible and maybe it was January 1st and you decided I'm, I'm, I'm going to start reading Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and maybe you make it all the way there and the big question is, do you make it to the end by the end of the year kind of thing, you know? Or maybe do you start it next year and pick up and read those five books? And if you're familiar with those books, you, you'll see a lot of what this New Testament author references items out of those books, specifically items from the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus. So here we go. Let's read this passage again. Hebrews 8, verse 1 through 2 says this. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. So the Son of Man, Jesus God, sits down at the completion of redemption. This ultimate redemption provides forgiveness of sins to his pinnacle creation, humanity. And as a seminary student, so in seminary, a professor once pointed out to us the significance of Jesus sitting in the book of Hebrews. And I hope that as we go through this portion of scripture together, that we see the significance of it. And our verse starts with Jesus sitting. And I hope that we end, where we end, we'll find we'll land on a verse with Jesus sitting again. It's like an inclusio. It's like, it starts with this idea of Jesus sitting down at the completion of something. And it ends with Jesus sitting down at the completion of something. And everything in between emphasizes what is it that Jesus completed. And I hope for us to walk through that together. And um, so let me just read here to you the next three verses. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 3 through 5 go like this. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. And this is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So does this, bring a, does this recall anything in your memories from reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Like thinking particularly in the book of Exodus when God pulled the nation of Israel out from underneath of bondage to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, miraculously brought them out into the desert with Moses as their leader into this desert wilderness where they go to a mountain and God proclaims to Moses for the nation of Israel rules and expectations of how the nation was meant to live before him before God took them into the promised land. And as you recall from reading Exodus, and maybe you found yourself getting really bogged down at this point. Because you're like, read the Ten Commandments, and then there's this host of other kind of um, expectation God lays before the people of Israel. Maybe it's like three chapters. And then, 
It gets into immense detail, point by point by point, of how Moses was meant to build the house meeting house where the Israelite people were meant to go meet with and worship God, the tabernacle. Point by point, how it was meant to be built. And then Exodus proceeds, as you read it, to to show that Moses, point by point, builds the tabernacle just so. And it's like, wow, that was a ton of detail. Where's like the cool stories of like battles and stuff? And then as you're reading, you find yourself in Leviticus. And point by point, you find how is it that the priests were meant to serve in the tabernacle for the purification of sins and and cleansing rites and all of these things. And it's overwhelming and there's all these details. And so it's like the author of Hebrews is trying to bring us back to, hey, remember? Remember in Exodus and Leviticus when that happened? It was meant to be a shadow of a new coming reality that God was going to bring about. And so our next verse that I want to put on the screen is verse 6 through 8. Go like this. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, just before I go into the next portion of Scripture, it's like, hey, Like the Old Covenant, actually, there wasn't necessarily fault with it. Where the fault lied, where there was a need for a new covenant, was the people. A great work Jesus brought into effect. A new covenant established on better promises. The reason a new covenant... um, The reason for a new covenant stemmed from humanity's weakness and depravity, missing God's expectation, sin and transgression. And like when you read in your reading plan, you get to six chapters into the Bible. Six chapters in. You get into six chapters in. And the scriptures say, and every inclination of the human heart is only evil all the time, such that the flood comes. And you can think about it honestly, How many times could have God flooded the earth after that fact? And so God found fault with the people. And look at what the scriptures say next. The days are coming, like pulling out an Old Testament prophetic passage here. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. It won't be like that one. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. Continuing. This is the covenant. I will make 
This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, know the Lord. Because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Mount Sinai, Exodus proved the state of the human heart. A new covenant would need to supplant the old one. God would need to do a great work to fix the human predicament. Humanity is wholly inept to fix it. God would need to intervene, which he did, by making promises and fulfilling them. Setting up things in the scriptures that were like a shadow until the one day it came to fulfillment. By ushering in at the fullness of time, a Messiah. God himself incarnate to fulfill his promise, to fix the predicament and usher in a new covenant. The new covenant, this new covenant, will not only provide full forever forgiveness, amazing in and of itself, But simultaneously to that, writing his laws and ways upon their hearts. It's like a both and. Like this new covenant that the the Messiah, God incarnate, comes to usher in. Not only brings full forever forgiveness, amazing in and of itself. But also simultaneously writes God's laws and ways upon the hearts of his people. You wonder when Jesus said to his disciples, it's better that I go. Is this what he's referring to? This new covenant reality of the Spirit of God taking up residence within believers who place their faith and trust on Jesus for salvation. Not only to have forgiveness of sins, which is amazing, but his Spirit indwelling them. So as we close this this little passage of chapter 8 and pick up with 9 with this, says this, By calling this covenant new, He has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. And so just to pause here for a moment, if you remember, oh, when we were bogged down with (laughs) the details of Exodus and Leviticus, just to bring the reader in. Let's just talk for a moment on some of those details. And if you were to look, uh, if I could just read it to you, let me read chapter 9 here, um, verse uh, 1 through 10. I'm just going to read it to you. You can just follow along if you want. It says this. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In it, First room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which 
had the golden altar of incense and the golden covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the golden jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Isn't it funny that the author said that? (laughs) Because, like, they totally could have. You know what I mean? Like, we could totally get way back down in all the details of this, but in, like, a little paragraph he tries to describe it. But where is he taking us? In verse 6, when everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he had offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Like the new order, when the Messiah comes to fulfill everything this shadow pointed to. And as you recall, (laughs) um, you'll see here in a little bit that Um, Nothing can be cleansed without the shedding of blood, which we're about to see. And so to put on the screen here, um, the next two verses, let's let's read these together. Say this in verse 9, chapter 9, verse 11, say this. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, that is not made with human hands, that is to stay, it's not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Built into the Old Testament was a picture, an illustration, a shadow of a greater reality God was yet to bring about. And Jesus came as the fulfillment of that picture, completing what God foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled all the tabernacle and temple worship pointed to, and we, who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus for salvation, stand in this new reality eternal redemption that his blood obtained for us. Verse 13 goes like this. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, 
cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. The outcome of this redemption Jesus brings is that we will now serve the living God. And I'm guessing serving him in ways that we would have been inept to otherwise. Full forgiveness of sins and writing his ways and laws on the hearts of his people. We would have been inept to do that if it weren't for Jesus pulling off the sacrifices of sacrifices. Verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. A new covenant providing eternal inheritance. And obviously we won't stop too long on that because it sounds like from the Apostles' Creed that should be coming next. The eternal inheritance that we hope for as believers. And forgiveness of sins. A believer can encounter much struggle and hardship for being a follower of Jesus. Yet they still have joy because their hope is set on something greater than the now. Their hope includes an eternal inheritance. And as this verse points out, and believers are set free from the sins the old covenant made apparent. Let me read to you this next little portion in verse 16. So in the case of a will, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because the will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while one who made it is living. And this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet, wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and the people. Kind of like wonder, like, ugh, like sprinkled the people. What would that have been like? Sprinkled the scroll and the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. That's a whole lot of detail. But where are we going? The hope is to get back to that chair over there where we started. But we had to get through this detail to get to it. Continuing, it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, 
The way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. And this part I want to put on the screen as we near the end. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Jesus, the ultimate high priest, provides ultimate forgiveness of sins. His forgiveness is so complete, humans are fully justified. Sins fully forgiven. Past, present sins, future sins. For believers who place their faith and trust in him, believers made saints. In the already, like theologians call it, in the already, but not yet. It's like, we're in the already, but we're not yet. Super helpful and also complex. In the already, but not yet. Sons and daughters of the living God. So maybe you've heard this before, like when a person places their faith and trust in Jesus, this phrase, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Have you heard of that phrase? That's a common phrase. But I, I heard another one, but very true, very helpful. That was also very true and very helpful, and I, and I kind of wonder, are both true? Saints who still struggle with sin. Saints who still struggle with sin. Sinner saved by grace. Both are true. It was Jesus who made this possible as a gift to be received freely by us. But when we think about it, and we read these passages anyway, it was an immense cost to himself to procure it for us freely to receive And the Son's accomplishment of providing ultimate forgiveness is so complete that his ascension to the right hand of the Father validates it. And so I feel like we're close to the chair, but we haven't quite made it there. And that's the end of chapter 8 and 9, you know? And I thought, to conclude, I had to reach in to chapter 10 to conclude on this note. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We started with Jesus sitting down. And we end all of that text with Jesus 
sitting down, having completed one of the miracle of miracles, the greatest accomplishment humanity could ever see. Jesus sat down upon his throne. And if one could describe all of that, the greatest gift humanity could ever receive, and they labeled it in one word, maybe they call it something like the gospel, capital G. And as I heard it from one of my seminary professors, God, when he completed creation, sat down, rested, so to speak, at the completion of creation. And here we have it. God, again, sits down at the completion of redemption. The point of our forgiveness is to bring us into this intimate father-son, father-daughter relationship like it used to be, like it was in the garden. So we can now serve him in a new, more powerful way with our sins forgiven and God's ways and laws written upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom Jesus made possible under the new covenant. And so, a thought to end with. As I was participating in your worship service, I was pretty overwhelmed by your amazing singing and making much of the name of God and making much of Jesus and worshiping him wholeheartedly. And what a great team that was up here leading us. And as I said in the earlier service, I'd thought, Wow, there was so much great truth that was proclaimed in the singing. I don't even know if I needed to come up to share this sermon. And I kind of wonder, like, God seated upon his throne with his name made much of by the believers here at Forest Hills Baptist Church. How much they must have made him proud and happy to see you lift up his name like that in praise. And I kind of wonder as we've walked through... Jesus accomplishing forgiveness of sins seated at the right hand of God. How might that prompt us to worship him with our lives through our singing and living out of our everyday lives as living sacrifices to him? How might we live in worship by imaging and imitating Jesus and advancing his disciple-making mission? And so... As I was going through these last few weeks, I came across this video that like kind of put me to tears almost. It's like, oh, that was pretty amazing. And it prompted my imagination of God, how might you want me to live before you, showing grace and love to others as you have shown overwhelming grace and love to me? How would you want me to live before you? And the video I came across, maybe you saw it, it was in the news. It was a Little League baseball team. And the batter gets hit in the head with a pitch that kind of thrown awry. And the, the thing that moved me most is what the batter did at the end. So if we could show that video. Oh, look out. That's awesome.
Wow, that is a tough kid right there. So this is really cool because as a pitcher, Bubs looks shaken up right now because of what he did. And look at Zay Jarvis. This is such great sportsmanship. He wants him to know that it's okay, that he'll be fine. Hey, Bob. Look, look at me. Look at me. You're all right. Amazing. You're all right. Look at me. Hey, look, look. What a stud right there. Zay Jarvis. So I just kind of wonder, church family, how are we meant to live? As we come across people who wound us, relationships that are broken, and how might we image Jesus by imitating him and advancing his disciple-making mission?